Back in July, you said that Kim Jong-il was the most dangerous leader in the world. Do you still feel that way today? I think he's even more dangerous now because uh, two things have happened, obviously. The, uh, the fact that he is uh, this close to making direct threats, and two, he's gotten married, so he might have a wo- woman to impress now. So love changes everything. Well, in this case, mad love might change things for the worse. Well, he wouldn't be the only guy on the planet that that would have happened to. (laughs) Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here is your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show number 60 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest returns to us from New York. Imran Anwar, welcome back to You Are the Guest. Thank you. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be back. How did you feel about our last conversation? I thought it was a very, very interesting and very educational conversation, not just uh, hopefully for the audience, but even for you and I, uh, because that is one of the joys of uh, an intelligent, interesting discussion, is that whether you agree or disagree, in general, it should leave you uh, more aware a person or more attuned to what others are thinking and open to more and more interesting points of view. I learned a lot from that conversation. And so with all the things that are going on in today's world, I thought that we could really maybe expand that conversation because a lot of the things will be the same topics that we talked about, but just kind of an update. Absolutely. First of all, agree or disagree. If North Korea tests a nuclear bomb, the North Korean government has signed their own death warrants. Disagree, because I am uh, sad to say that uh, Kim Il-jong is not a, um, a fool in that sense. He knows that the United States does not have the wherewithal or the energy to be starting a new war now in the Korean Peninsula uh, when we're already stuck in Afghanistan where the Taliban are coming back, in, stuck in Iraq where the insurgents are getting the upper hand, and now we're also threatening Iran, so they know they're never going to uh, have the U.S. attack them. Additionally, the Chinese, regardless of what they think about the North Koreans, are not going to allow the U.S. to set up a base camp at their border. But Ambassador Bolton has really had some tough rhetoric going out to North Korea. Well, absolutely, but rhetoric is all that we have been uh, uh, giving, and in uh, a very strange way, uh, uh, George W. Bush and uh, even his henchmen had been at the United Nations at every other uh, platform that they could go, uh, talking about how they would not stand for weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam Hussein may have dreamt of some night or the other, and we were ready to go to war for that. And in the meantime, every time the North Korean dictator has escalated or increased uh, the, the rhetoric on his side or the threat of a test or any other kind of statement, we have simply said, oh, Uh, This is really uncalled for. This will not be tolerated. And, okay, until next week, we'll see you then. And that's basically, he knows that we are stuck playing that role, we're playing that game, and he is taking advantage of that, and he is as close to being uh, an active enemy um, as any country in the world is, and that the Iranians and the Iraqis combined could not have been. So why is North Korea wanting to dance with this 
rhetoric of we're going to test the nuclear bombs? Because uh, what it is giving him is it's a win-win situation for this guy. One, for a uh, megalomaniac like him and a dictator like him, the fact that the United States and the rest of the world is talking about puny little hungry piece of you know real estate that has nothing going for it, North Korea, is the topic of conversation at every head of state's uh, office or uh, discussion board everywhere in the world. So he's got all the attention. Number two, he's taking on America. Number three, he's thumbing his nose at America. Number four, America is powerless to do anything about it. So he literally is showing how he is single-handedly standing up to America, not just in rhetoric like Chavez or somebody else might do, but literally militarily threatening the United States, saying that I have missiles, okay, it fell in the ocean, but my test was capable of reaching as far as Hawaii and other parts of the United States. So guess what? I am equal, if not uh, a bigger threat, than anybody else to the United States. And he's, he's getting it both ways. And he knows the U.S. will not attack him. So whether we threaten him and don't do anything, he comes out ahead. If we threaten him and fail to change anything and actually get China attacking or fighting with the United States, he wins again. I mean, in every sense of the game, he is coming out ahead. And to him, it has become not just a game, but a very good strategic move. Back in July, you said that Kim Jong-il was the most dangerous leader in the world. Do you still feel that way today? I think he is even more dangerous now because uh, two things have happened, obviously. The, uh, the fact that he is uh, this close to making direct threats, and two, he's gotten married, so he might have a wo- woman to impress now. So love changes everything. Well, in this case, mad love might change things for the worse. Well, he wouldn't be the only guy on the planet that that would have happened to. <laughs> well, I wish Laura Bush would do something about George Bush and keep his, button, uh, his fingers away from uh, these war-starting buttons that he loves to push. China was still on North Korea's side back in July. And now they've seemed to walk away saying to North Korea, if you do this test, you're on your own. So what's changed? China knows that its economic bread and butter is coming from the United States. It also knows that no matter how strong it gets, it cannot take on America militarily. Um, It cannot survive. Uh, Obviously, there's mutual assured destruction if two nuclear countries go to war. However... China is playing the game of making us feel like they are not siding with North Korea. So they have certain uh, problems they are facing with the United States. The trade deficit continues to grow at alarming rates. They are holding more and more of U.S. treasuries and are basically they are financing our way of life in many ways. On top of that, there is a lot of talk about how China and its companies steal intellectual property and then are literally turning back around and creating products to undersell us. So all these things are going on. And on top of that, they also keep their, um, uh, their, their currency artificially pegged uh, so that uh, their imports continue to be inexpensive for countries like America to import. So um, in all these places, they are potentially... Uh, could be punished by America on one or more of these economic fronts. So they need to make the sounds to make us feel that, oh, well, ignore all the economic advantage we are taking of you, and we will make it look like we are not opposing you in this theater of potential war. In the meantime, they're not sincere about that. They have no desire to have the United States 
come in and invade North Korea. We already control South Korea uh, to, for all intents and purposes. North Korea is on the border with China. Why would, uh, much like in, uh, being in Afghanistan, the fact that we are stuck in Afghanistan, Russia is not saying anything, and Afghanistan was a, uh, was a valid war because of 9-11. But if the U.S. had invaded um, Afghanistan unrelated to September 11 with, uh, let's say, uh, half a million troops, Russia would have been doing the same exact thing we did to them in 1980s, uh, which was to create an unrest uh, and financing the Mujahideen. In this particular case, China will not allow that to happen, that we have an American military presence right on their borders. They will not, they will not stand for that. Agree or disagree, the war between Hezbollah and Israel was a diversion for Iran's nuclear aspirations. I, uh, I agree that this was a, um, uh, a part of Iran's uh, move onto a bigger theater, but it was not on the nuclear front per se. It was more to divert attention from itself in general and to show that if you try to make us the next Iraq, we are not going to go silently, but we can hit out at your allies and destabilize the whole Middle East, if not the rest of the world. Between Hezbollah and Israel, were there any winners, or were both countries two non-winners or two non-losers? Steve, that's a very interesting question. The, the, uh, the, uh, when, when any two countries go to war and people die, obviously the losers are the people. In this particular case, the, Victory is decided based upon. Victory can be declared based upon what the goals were. Israel said they would eliminate Hezbollah. They failed in that. Uh, Israel um, said that they would uh, basically. You know, Israel always has been the uh, unquestioned military superpower in that region. So on both those fronts, Israel as a nation and as a military power lost because this band of uh, thugs and this band of. Uh, Fighters basically held off the Israeli army and the onslaught of America financed, and we rushed, we Americans rushed laser guided bombs to them even until the last day of bombing. So, literally, we helped the Hezbollah win PR points. They, I'm sure, they, they used up a lot of their arsenal, so they lost in terms of their future firepower. They lost a lot of fighters, so they obviously lost some manpower. They obviously lost the goodwill of some of the Lebanese people, but the response from the Israelis, the bombing of Lebanese cities, actually strengthened the Lebanese who were originally more likely to, uh, to hate the Hezbollah for bringing this destruction to them. They actually became more uh, against Israel and the United States. So in the long run, Hezbollah is still there, stronger in the PR sense, and uh, Israel had uh, took uh, uh, a PR beating as well as a military reputation beating. And obviously America was the loser because we were siding unilaterally with the Israelis instead of uh, trying to say, let's go after the Hezbollah, let's try to control Iran, but not punish the Lebanese. So I think in that sense, the Lebanese, the American government and our policies and Israel were the losers. Um, the Iranians, uh, even though they were not in the battle itself, and the Hezbollah, PR machine were the victors in terms of what they achieved. Agree or disagree? Things are getting worse in Iraq. Oh, absolutely. They're getting much worse. And these, uh, literally, uh, bin Laden, if, if this Christmas I wouldn't be surprised if bin Laden sends a thank you note or a gift basket uh, to George W. Bush saying thank you for 
giving me more uh, recruits than I could have dreamed of in, in my entire life. Are the Iraqi government officials stuck in neutral? Are they just talking and debating too much and not taking enough action about solving the problems in that country? The fact of the matter is that no matter what, how hard they try or how little or more they talk, they are a puppet government as perceived by the masses and the region because they are still an occupied country. And the, this perception slash reality will remain as long as we have troops on the ground there acting and telling them what they can and cannot do. And that problem is not going to go away even after we leave anytime soon. But the longer we stay here in Iraq, the longer the insurgency and the worse the insurgency and the greater the threat and increase in terrorism as opposed to what George Bush claimed, that will continue and get worse and worse in the years to come. And that's the sad truth. Can the U.S. afford to lose the war in Iraq? Absolutely not. We had no business starting it, and now we have started something that we will pay the price. Whether we leave or we stay, we will be paying with body bags for years to come. And what is the solution? Is the solution to get out, as some of the Democrats want to do, or is it just to stay and hang in there? That, that's exactly the uh, $64 million question. The problem is that in the immediate, in the immediate future, this leaving Iraq may sound like it will cause more problems because there will be an instant uh, uh, upsurge in the groups vying for, uh, for control. Yes, that will not be a good thing. However, us staying there longer for 20 years, for example, is not the answer either. So in the long run, leaving now in an orderly fashion, not picking up our boots and bags and leaving tomorrow, but leaving in an orderly fashion in the next three to six months, uh, transitioning one province at a time to the locally elected governments and a military force is the only way to do this. Otherwise, George Bush will be long gone, and we will still be use, losing young men and women, mostly from poor families in that part of the world where we had no business being, while creating more terrorists threatening you and me living here in our own homeland. What are the chances of groups like Hezbollah jumping into Iraq and, and causing lots of grief for people once the U.S. leaves? The, the fact of the matter is the Hezbollah is really a Shiite militia that is more interested in their territory, which is Lebanon. The Iraqi nation itself has its own non-Hezbollah Shiite militia because Iraq has a huge population of Shiite people, and what the U.S. did was by overthrowing the Sunni-led minority government of Saddam Hussein, it has actually created the likelihood of an Iran-type theocratic Shiite government, not just in Iran and eventually, let's say, Lebanon, but also Iraq. So even for George W. Bush will have achieved something no man in the world, no Muslim man in the world could have achieved getting the otherwise hating each other bin Laden types and the Shiite Ayatollah types to be in literally unite, united and unified uh, against one person and one country, and that's the United States. So that's something even, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but even the Holy Prophet Muhammad could not have influenced the Shiites and the Sunnis coming back together as George W. Bush has. So he definitely has the year of God somewhere.
What do you think is the solution for the Iraqi government to start divvying up all the oil supplies and all the property that these tribes seem to be fighting over? The, the, the problem is that over the years, the, um, the, the majority felt, and, and truly felt uh, correctly, that the Sunni minority was exploiting them. But that is something that happens in every country in the world. What happens is, in a country like Pakistan, the natural gas resources are in one of the most uh, rocky, inhospitable, uh, underdeveloped, and uneducated parts of the country. So when the gas is taken into the big cities that were already developed, the people living in those undeveloped areas say, these cities were built on my wealth, which is not true. It's just that the resource is better utilized by cities that already existed in other parts of the country. But the grudge remains, and that can lead to a civil war, for example, between those provinces. That can happen someday in the United States. Let's say Louisiana could someday say, hey, we're the ones providing all the oil for the United States, but look at the condition of New Orleans. So it's the northeast and the west coast that's screwing us, so we want independence from them. However, fortunately for us, because the even despite more poverty, let's say, in Louisiana than, say, in New York or California, we generally have enough of the wealth going around. We have enough of a middle class. Even our, uh, even our poor are much better off than many middle classes around the world. In that sense, we are less likely to face that problem, but it could happen here someday. In Iraq, the problem is that you have the south and the north, that problem, but you also have a religious divide, the Shiite and the Sunni. And if you put that mix into something like a Saddam dictatorship falling to an occupying, crusading superpower, as they think of us, you have the makings of a disaster, no matter what combination of cards you deal out. And that's what has to be literally addressed as a single point of focus for us as, an, as a government, as a country, that's the problem we have to solve. Otherwise, we'll be there for 100 more years, and we will still not be able to solve the problem. Agree or disagree, Osama bin Laden is still alive. Oh, absolutely. There would be no doubt about that. Um, if, if he had died, uh, yes, one would assume that people would want to keep it secret so that he can remain um, a viable force. But he is also, for an ordinary guy who's not a religious scholar, but merely... Uh, a troublemaker, he is now revered to the extent that if he was to die, uh, they would have a procession for his, for, his, uh, for his funeral. And literally there would be millions and millions of people who would attend that funeral. And if that were to happen, we can't go bombing of five million people attending a funeral. So there would be no point to hiding that. As a matter of fact, he might even want uh, to, because he knows he's not going to live forever. So in his mind, I am sure he has some plan for his own funeral to be a statement-making thing because it helps him establish himself as a martyr. And his desire, I might even think, would be that he might even say, if I die of a kidney disease, you know, blow up a grenade around my body to make it look like I, I was blown up uh, in a firefight or something instead of dying like a whimpering patient on, a, um, on some sort of machine. And not only that, but Whitney Houston is getting a divorce. Well, absolutely. I think the, the best way to find bin Laden is to make Bobby Brown or whatever her husband's name is think that um, she's uh, having an affair with bin Laden. He might go hunt her down with his uh, inner city gangs and uh, uh, drug uh, mafia friends. And he could do it. He possibly could do it.
Oh, we can send Jack Bauer from 24. Back to serious stuff here. As an effective leader, is Osama bin Laden stronger or weaker than he was three years ago? I think he is less of a leader now. He is more of a um, figure. He is more of an inspiration, and that's even better than he could have hoped for. In the old days, he literally was the glue. Him and uh, the uh, you know Al Zawahiri guy, um, they were the two literally the the planners, the uh, strategic uh, minds, and the inspiration. By starting this dumb, stupid war in Iraq, we have given people like Zarqawi, who we got rid of, and now the Al-Masri guy, and countless others, the opportunity to become the operational managers, leaders, executives, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, project managers. And now bin Laden can be like that retired chairman of a company, the founder of the company, who, you know, like a, sort of a Hugh Hefner lifestyle with without the 72 virgins around him. So in other words, he's sitting around with boat drinks. Well, uh, well uh, you know, uh, I don't think he'd sit around with boat drinks because he's still young and uh, uh, hates us enough that he's probably still toying with ideas. He's still running his little core. You know, for example, when Al Newhart, the founder of USA Today, uh, retired from Gannett and everything else, obviously he was not editing the newspapers anymore. He's not saying you know, take this political angle or write this editorial, but he can start a foundation to improve journalism in the United States, you know, for example. So he can still play an active role and still be the inspirational figure for Gannett and USA Today. But what kind of a life is that to just be hiding out in caves? The point is for somebody uh, who is driven by his agenda or his goal to bring down the United States, it, to him, it's like, what, what's the big deal? To him, this is... It's not about personal convenience. It's not about personal comfort. It's not about. He was a rich man, a billionaire's son, who could have multiple palaces and multiple wives uh, and multiple girlfriends, uh, with or without Whitney Houston. Uh, but he gave that up. It's almost like saying, you know, if uh, Jesus Christ had wanted, he could have built better palaces than the Pope lives in, uh, but he chose not to because his mission was more important to him. So, in some ways, Bin Laden sees himself not as a messiah of a prophetic nature or but more as somebody who is choosing to live this lifestyle because his goal is more important to him. So to him, this question would be a meaningless one for us uh, to discuss. The question is, how can he justify the killing of Muslims at the hands of Muslims? That is what we need to somehow play on, raise that issue in the minds of the Muslims who are signing up for him, thinking they are bringing down America, but saying, how are you hurting America when it's 50 Iraqi Muslims dying every day? And that's the question we are not asking enough. That's not the question that we're giving the opportunity to Muslim thought leaders or other leaders, such as myself and others, to come on TV and keep harping on and keep raising, because that's the only chink in their armor, getting normal, otherwise even uneducated, passionately anti-West Muslims to say, this is not how you win over the West. This is not how you defeat the West. You are going not to heaven. You're not getting 72 virgins. You're getting 72 babas there because of what you are doing, killing innocent people, children, and uh, adults, whether in the World Trade Center or in Baghdad. Are Muslims giving Osama bin Laden a free pass? And if so, why? That's a very, 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 very good question. I believe he is getting a free pass, and there is a almost a look-the-other-way mentality, which my fellow Muslims are feeling. They, they do detest 
the murder uh, of uh, people going on. Uh, if you if you remember, there were uh, Muslim countries that were um, siding with us on September 11, and at that time, Bin Laden was considered a uh, an uh, an outcast. However, it was the Iraqi war that made him the this figure uh, of respect. And what is happening is that the people who are giving him a free pass are looking at, quote, the good work he is doing, the good work in their minds that he is doing in attacking America. And when they see the reports of 50 or 60 Iraqi Muslims killed at the hands of other Muslims, what they tend to do is to say, oh, but it's not bin Laden doing it. It's the nutcase Zarqawi uh, or it's the nutcase al-Masri or whatever. They sort of shift the blame somewhere else, and it's a psychological game Muslims are playing with themselves. And I absolutely, so that's a great question you asked. What are the consequences of giving Osama bin Laden a free pass in the Muslim world? The, the, uh, obviously, the biggest uh, issue is it maligns the name of Islam and Muslims that Muslims supposedly think bin Laden is serving. So, and, but we're not playing on that. We are not exposing that. We are not highlighting that. Instead, we are providing them more and more reasons to hate us because of what we're doing in Iraq, and now we're going against Iran. What we should have done a lot better was focus, 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 solve the Afghanistan problem, get the Taliban out, develop that country. We could have developed Afghanistan into a developed country in less than one day or one week of the cost of bombing in Iraq, and we could have turned that into a literally a Paris in an otherwise rocky Stone Age era. And if we had done that, we would have certainly shown the Muslims, wow, a Muslim country can be this hot, this great, this developed, and look at that. America solved the problem, and they got the guy who killed 3,000 Americans that day. Now that would have put good pressure on people like Saddam and Saddam, who, by the way, we were the ones arming and financing. You've seen pictures of uh, Rumsfeld hugging Saddam. So the problem is we then went attacked a guy who was detested in the Muslim world, Saddam Hussein, and we made him look like a good guy now. And Iraq was not a popular country in the Muslim world because it was not a Muslim country in terms of how it was run. We have made that a cause celebre for the cause celebre for the for the terrorists and the Islamic fundamentalists. Now we're going after Iran, a country that is not liked by the Arab or the Muslim world. It is a country that Pakistan feels troubled with its Shiite export of religion from. Yet we are now making Iran and the next Iraq by making Ahmadinejad seem like a bold, wise leader against this cowboy crusading Bush who is hearing voices of God in his ears. And that is how we are still on the wrong path. Five years after September 11, three or four years after we started the war in Iraq, we are not only still on those wrong paths, we are starting to build a new highway of destruction and a new highway that will create literally the war of civilizations that Bush secretly wants, and that scares me. Religion and politics scared me in Pakistan. It scared me when the Ayatollah came into Iran, but it scares me even more when it's right here in Washington, D.C., because this is our country, and we're letting that happen, and that scares me, literally scares me. But don't you think that George Bush is also a lame duck at this point? I mean, he's only got, effectively, another yeah, 12 months in the office. 
Absolutely. And in the good old days, a lame duck was that he could not make social security change. He could not change a new tax law, for example. A lame duck would be somebody who could not say, let's send uh, you know, a man to Mars or something. However, a lame duck who has a finger on the nuclear button can still be more dangerous than somebody who you gave a 12-year presidency to. And so this lame duck with a lame brain is the most dangerous thing that ever happened to our country. And I am not a, a Republican or a Democrat. I am saying that as an American. This is the most dangerous man. And he, in his next two years, trying to leave a crusading legacy, can do more harm, not just to the world, but to help destroy America. This one man can do more unless we sit up and refuse to take any more of this and make the Supreme Court and the Congress do their job, which they are not doing. I respectfully say this, but this is the same argument I heard about Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan was also driven by an American supremacy concept. But Ronald Reagan actually had a massive enemy that was a military threat to us, yet was economically on the verge of collapse. So he helped that along, absolutely. But at no stage was Ronald Reagan hearing voices of the other father or God telling him that he has to bring about this kind of change for literally the second coming of Christ. No, but he was bringing in astrologists. And there was a lot of controversy about that, and actually, they were just saying, hey, bringing in astrologers, so. and, and they were just saying, hey, you know what, the, the guy is old, the guy is crazy, he could push the button at any given time, and then when he's dead, everybody hails him as an American hero. Two, two reasons for that, two reasons for that. One is that Ronald Reagan was not the sharpest, uh, uh, smartest, uh, most intelligent guy, but he was smart enough to, to surround himself with smart people, he did have, see himself as a cowboy. However, he was very fortunate that Russia was imploding economically on its own without our help. And it, he happened to be in America at a time of economic prosperity, especially after the bad, sad years of Carter. Oh, well, I, I, I will disagree with that because his first administration was a, a terribly bad economic time. Right, but when people are remembering Ronald Reagan... They are not remembering the year after Carter left. They right. are remembering and, and, and Bill Clinton was able to then really capitalize on all the work that Ronald Reagan did years later. Absolutely. And then people are also smart enough to remember that Reagan left them in good years, even though a recession may have started in his ending years, when people actually felt the bad economic times was when George Bush Sr. was in power, which is why he lost, obviously. It's the economy stupid. And so the fact of the matter is, Yes, people had valid concerns about Cowboy Reagan doing something stupid. Fortunately for us, that did not happen. Reagan did not start massive wars that we had no business being in. George Bush started wars based upon hearing voices, talking to his other father, not even talking to George Bush, who I did not much care for as a president, but I would definitely, if my father... Were, if, even, if he's, even if I was president and George Bush Sr. is not my father, I would go running to him for advice and say, Mr. Bush, I may have disagreed with some of your policies, but you've been head of the CIA. You have actually started a war in Iraq in the past. You have met people like Saddam Hussein. What do you advise I do in this situation? George Bush Jr. chose to talk to a other father, 
rather than to George Bush Sr. And that is how he he is more dangerous, and he is a he is the first thing that has happened in recent history to America, where it's not conservative values that are being brought into society, it is religion being brought into the greatest nation on the planet and into its government. And I am yet to see any good, small, big, or any kind of country where religion brought into politics did not make for a destruction of that society. I lived in Pakistan and saw that happen. I've seen that happen in next door to me in Iraq, in Iran, I'm sorry. I've seen that happen with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I saw India almost go, to, go up in flames when they had a very uh, aggressively Hindu government in power and almost went to a, a nuclear sort of confrontation with Pakistan. Uh, I have seen that happen over and over again in my lifetime, even without me being a statesman or a politician or even a student of history in a big way. And we are allowing that to happen in our country. We cannot afford that. We cannot afford that for ourselves or for our children or for the future of this great nation, the United States of America. Uh, I'm not getting this, the other father point that you're making. So, so what are you referring to there? George Bush basically said that he had spoken to, um, let's say, the voice of Jesus Christ or God or whoever. And that's what told him that what he's doing is the right thing and that's what he needs to do. So where does Congress fit in? Sorry? Where does Congress fit in? I mean, they approve the measures, too. Absolutely, and that's exactly what uh, the point I made earlier. Thank God that the Supreme Court... But, but I'm talking about Congress here. I'm saying is thank God that the Supreme Court woke up and did a few things in, in recent decisions. Otherwise, both the Supreme Court and the Congress were basically just saying, oh, if I say anything that is the right thing to say... But uh, my patriotism is questioned, and if voters are going to vote me out of power thinking that I am not with George Bush in this war on terror, I will lose the elections. They were selling out our national interest and what makes our system of government the greatest, most balanced system in the world. They were selling that out just to make sure they were not questioned on the patriotism front or that they were not looking weak to their voters so that they could keep coming back and staying in power. So are you saying that George Bush is a religious zealot who is starting this war and starting conflict just because of his religious beliefs? I wouldn't say that George Bush is as dangerous as, say, the Ayatollah Khomeini was, or, say, um, somebody like, uh, um, uh, if if a religious leader were to come into power in a country like uh, uh, Syria or whatever. However, the damage a military or a, a dictator or a religious zealot uh, in a country like, I'm just making this up, in Afghanistan, the Taliban could do is a lot less than a religiously driven, born-again Christian who admits to saying, and who admitted that he did not consult with George Bush, but consulted with a higher father in the decision to go to war. But most presidents have said that. No. I mean, if you can go through, if you okay. can go through history and say, God help has, has religion or has prayer helped in some of their decisions, especially some of the tough decisions, you could find lots of evidence toward that. Everybody can invoke saying, "I pray to God to help us achieve, fight over, win over Nazis or communists or whoever." Yeah. Saying a prayer to hoping to make the right decision is different from saying that a higher power told him to make this happen and that is the so so how do you how do you 
Explain Congress's part in that. Because once you, when you take it in the context of all this happening in a post-9-11 world, where one, the people were one, afraid that we might be hit again, two, angry that we were hit, three, still sad about the loss of 3,000 American lives, and four, feeling, oh my God, we need to take action against this enemy. Who is the enemy? I can't understand what the enemy is, so I will let George Bush tell me who the enemy is. And as you know, George Bush can declare enemy, en anyone an enemy combatant. You and I could be declared enemy combatants because that's the kind of power that is being given to him. On top of that, this was very well managed by a very organized Karl Rove-driven uh, party that has done a great job in not only deflecting blame for September 11, even though Condi Rice was given briefings saying bin Laden is a threat and is going to attack inside the United States, but to be able to deflect blame from that and actually win re-election in 2004, despite a very, very bad bag of records and results. So they've done a great job on the political manipulation of fear and apathy on the part of people and selfishness and a desire to stay in power on the parts of congressmen. In the long run, when history looks back on this, they will look at us as some voices of reason that tried to raise these issues, whether you and I agree or disagree. They will at least give us credit for having raised the issues. These last few years of Congress will be spat upon by American history for having been the worst enemies of democracy and American values that our entire 200-year history has seen. And I am I'm, I'm sad to see that these people would rather stay in power and then look down, than, than to look at how history will judge and spit upon them. And I'm using that word very consciously. American history will spit upon our Congress people today, of today, Democrats and Republicans. But Congress played a role in this too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Congre Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, they were approving of this, except for maybe a handful. Approving, we're doing it for two reasons. Right, so George Bush didn't just start this all by himself. George Bush started it all by himself, and then he sold the Congress a false story, as we are finding out now. I don't know if you caught that uh, uh, press conference where George Bush was making a speech about September 11, and a reporter asked him, what did that have to do with Iraq? And George Bush's answer was, nothing. Right, but that is nothing new today. But, I mean, we've, we've known that for, for years. That is when they went to Congress and to the American people and lied and lied and lied and said September 11 was related to Iraq. Saddam Hussein was involved in that plan and plot. And that's what we were sold, that that's where Al-Qaeda is now operating. And guess what? Al-Qaeda is now actively working in Iraq thanks to us giving them this new playground, this new nursery, this new factory, actually, to develop and train new terrorists. So we are now facing the threat that did not exist until George Bush caused and created it by lying to the American people, lying, lying, lying. And that's what this whole thing is, that Congress is not innocent. Congress, however, can claim that they were initially misled and lied to, but even today, they remain a lame duck Congress, and they're selling out American values and our Constitution and our future. And that's what I'm saying is that that's what they are guilty of. But starting the war 
and then going to war and expanding presidential powers to say, oh, the September 11 event gave me the power to start a war in Iran and next in Syria and next in China if I want. That's what was done by the executive branch that has usurped more and more of the power and shame on Congress for allowing that to happen and shame on us as Americans for sitting back watching American Idol more than voting in our, in our own elections while this is happening. Imran, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. This is where I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, and you get to ask me three questions about anything. So fire away. What is the solution to the Iraqi problem in your mind? Oh, we have to stay there till the government is able to stand up on its own. And, and I know that's a real simplistic view. Um, I also think that we're probably going to be there through probably 2010. So we're going to be there for at least another four more years, and it's going to take the next president a couple of years to get out. Will that make Iraq less of a nursery for growing terrorists? I kind of look at Iraq as a buffer zone. For example, if the conflict between Hezbollah and Israel didn't have that buffer between Iran and the area, and you had Saddam in power and he's still giving out the bounties and he's probably anteing up, I think that would have been a huge, big mess. Okay. Um, in your opinion, it's, is, is it only a matter of time before the Hezbollah, the Palestinians, the Hamas, and uh, even the um, other Muslim uh, non-fundamentalist but Israel-fighting entities decide it's time to punish Americans for their government's unilateral support and arming of Israel. Is it a matter of time? Oh, probably. Uh, here's a question that I, that I didn't ask you. Has there ever been a time when Arab countries haven't hated the U.S. or the West? And in, in my short lifetime of 45 years, since I've been politically active, which would probably go all the way back to maybe me being 15 or 16, I can't think of a time when the Arabs didn't hate us. And so it would be no surprise to me if, if that happened, because I've just grown up for the last you know, almost 30 years thinking that these guys are going to get us anyways. Are you uh, describing Arabs as the people in the Middle East, or are you also including Muslims as Pakistan and Iran in that? I think it goes back to the stereotype of what you see on TV, the people that are protesting, the people that have the guns, the, 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 the bad people of the Arab world that okay, seem, seem to be getting a lot of the press that say, hey, you know what, they, they want us gone. No, but my question is, uh, do you think we're talking about the entire Muslim world then? No. Just the Arabs? Well, I probably have... have pigeonholed them in, into the same areas, yeah. Okay, because um, I was born in 1962, and I remember my earliest memories, because my dad uh, used to drive a lot and go for long drives. Even when I was three to five years old, I remember the uh, transportation trucks that used to be on the highways that were driven by the uneducated, bearded, very religious, conservative, Pakhtun and Pathan 
people of the same region where the Taliban are now in power, they used to control the transportation business and the back of every truck, which is very usually ornately painted with you know, flowers and trees and whatnot, the back of every truck would have a handshake image of two hands where the cuff of one was the Pakistani flag and the other cuff was the American flag. And that was in my lifetime when I was conscious enough to know that. So let's take that as 1965 to 68 time frame. And so, or let's make it 1966 to 2006. So in the last 30 to 40 years, we have gone from where that part of the world that spent their own hard-earned money to paint American flags on their uh, tools of trade, even though the trucks were not made in America, the equipment, the goods were, that they were carrying were not American-made, they were not working for the American embassy or any other American company, those people are now the ones who are providing safe harbor to bin Laden and his henchmen who are out to destroy America. Right next door to them, from and these people live in Pakistan and Afghanistan, by the way, the Pakhtuns that I'm describing. Next step over, you have Iran, which was such a such an Americanized society that when Iranians came to Pakistan, which is a moderate Muslim country, they would consider us too backwards, and Pakistanis would look at them as too American skirts and whatnot. And those same people are now wearing black veils and chanting death to America. Now, if it was religion, this would have happened 1,400 years ago. But this happened in the last literally 30 years, actually, because 2006 we were talking about it, but by 1986 it had started. So um, in 20 years, basically, we helped that change come about. And the Iranians are not friends of the Arabs. The Pakistanis are not Arabs. Pakistanis have more in common with a little bit with the Iranians, but more in common with the Indians, for example, culturally and color of skin and genetic makeup-wise. Yet these are totally different, sometimes even opposing each other, cultures and histories and civilizations, the Persians versus the, the let's say, the Indian subcontinent versus the Arab empire, yet we have successfully managed to turn the most Americanized societies in that part of the world into the most vehemently and virulently anti-American, not just anti-West, they're not anti-Sweden, they're not anti-French, you know, uh, anti-American. And that is the problem we face, that our policies have done that, and since we are not even reconsidering our policies, it is simply a matter of time before more and more individuals, not even governments, decide to bring the war and the suffering to us. And that scares me because then it's an escalating problem because then more Americans can say, oh, they hate us because they blew up Times Square, they blew up LAX, they blew up, I don't know, you know, Disneyland or whatever. And when that happens, then there's no stepping back because... See, I think, I think the view of most Americans is that they hate us no matter what. But it only happened 20 years ago, and that's what I, I sadly the media does not highlight. But see, I, I remember 
really having some discussions with Iranian students back in 1979. And, and they were students here. At, at, and keeping the Shah of Iran and at, the dictator if there ever was one. Right. But the thing that I, I could never get over is that I would have discussions with them about how much they hated the United States. And yet they had no problem living here and going to school here and being basically Iranian playboys until they were called back to their country. And, and, um, and all the discussions I would have with them is that if this country is so bad, why don't you go back? That's where, that's where you have to make a distinction. Somebody hating American policy is not the same as somebody hating America. But see, they hated Americans too. For example, I have nothing against the Russian people, but I can hate communism and the Soviet state. And when Americans here, they hate us. That's because our governments, sometimes at the behest and sometimes to protect our Israeli lobby and our Israeli sort of uh, uh, friendship, will make a generic, they hate us. It's not true. You can be assured that you, if you were to visit Pakistan with me, I have seen even in, as, early, as early as last year, I went for a late night dinner in a very popular uh, f- uh, food street, as it's called. And we sat down to have dinner, and the table next to ours, and this was like a sidewalk cafe, a very um, non-fancy middle of old inner city neighborhoods where you would think the most likelihood of somebody getting shot or kidnapped uh, for being an American or a white or Western person. This family, uh, uh, it wasn't a family, it was like two couples, I should say. Two American couples sat down for dinner. And on other tables, there were a very typical Lahore, um, you know, maybe middle school past or high school or middle school dropout um, truck driver type people having the same food, chicken, you know, and whatnot. And when the, um, those, those people finished their food and they left, and the American uh, couples were about to leave, uh, I should say the white American couples because I'm an American too, but they were about to leave when they tried to pay the bill, the waiter told them that those four big burly truck driver type guys who did not even try to strike up a conversation saying, you know, maybe I want to talk to two blondes or something. They had paid for the American couple's food as a gesture of hospitality and left, not even saying, hey, we paid for your food. And my brother-in-law and I were sitting there, and we just, like, you know, um, smiled because we weren't even surprised. Yet those same four guys would be more than happy to, um, you know, to attack an American embassy um, if... um, say, uh, uh, an, American, uh, dipl- uh, an American policymaker was there. So that is something our fellow Americans need to understand. But the vast majority of Americans don't have that type of interaction, especially out here in the Midwest, where there's not a lot of Absolutely. Uh, uh, population. But, but my, my, my point is that when the, the common guy right. that sees on TV chance of death to America... They take that personally. Absolutely, and that's why I love it that people like you and I can have conversations and help educate our fellow Americans and say, yes, you can hate your government, and I can hate my government. Sometimes the government is not even screwing us 1% 
of what it is screwing other people around the world. And when they chant death to America, it is not a personal hatred for you and me. Don't get me wrong. There but might but, be some people, but out people there. in America yes. take it personally. No, no, no. Remember, I can say the following. Um, let's say I was from um, um, Saudi Arabia. The fact that 17 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, you could say, uh, you know, we hate Saudi Arabia. Saudis are evil. And if I was from Saudi Arabia, I'd say, don't take that. You know, don't say that. Say that the Saudi terrorists were illegal or were evil, or the people in the Saudi government who looked the other way, or even financed people like that are evil. But hey, I am not like that. So that same way, it is essential that, if, for example, if somebody says, "I hate America," obviously as an American, I should be offended. But at the same time, if I see that that person's meaning is, "I hate American policy." Or even saying something like, Imran, I hate you because you wrote a letter to George Bush saying, do this and this, and he did that. So you are as guilty as George Bush. I can understand that. But what we need to understand before we allow our politicians on this side and the leaders on the other side to bring about the clash of civilizations that they are both hoping for, the only hope is for people like you and me to say, look at what the people are talking about. They are not talking about killing, they're not saying kill Bill, you know. But see, I'm not so sure about that. No, but that's what I'm saying. And the only way you can find that out is that, that there are people, for example, I love and, and then the other part about that is that I'm not so sure I want to take the chance oh, to absolutely. find out. Absolutely. But at that, by that same token, Bill, are you sure you want to take the chance of going at midnight into the streets of Harlem, New York, without being uh, sure that you will be shot, or worse, because you're a white guy in Harlem at midnight. No, but I would be smart enough not to invite the trouble. That, but, the, but the point I am saying is that not going to Harlem is the same as not going to Baghdad or going to Afghanistan. I would not go to Afghanistan right now for the same reason. It's not a stable, it's a dangerous place. However, the point I'm making is that that does not mean that the city of New York hates you or the people of New York hate you just because you would have been taken out in the streets of Harlem. So yes, the likelihood of you being kidnapped on the streets of Baghdad is high. But that does not mean every Iraqi out there is waiting for you to land and to get off that plane so that they can shoot at you with a rifle. That's the difference I'm trying to highlight, is that the hatred is driven by policies. And if we do not do anything to change our policies, and they to change their government's policies, then it becomes a people versus people fight. Remember, generally in Pakistan, in India, the hatred is almost, it's less than before, but it was not a Pakistanis hate the Indian government, Indians hate the Pakistani government. No, the hatred was Hindu Indians hating Muslim Pakistanis and vice versa. That takes much longer to ever solve. At this stage even, we are at the stage where we can still say, the Iranian people hate American policies. The American people hate Iranian policies. It will be much harder when Muslims hate Christians. Your Arabs hate Americans. Ali hates Bill. When we get to that stage, we have a bigger problem. And we are not there yet, but we are headed that way. And that's why I love the fact that we can talk about this and try to educate our fellow Americans. And as I try to educate my fellow Muslims around the world, this is not about Ali versus Bill. It's not about Imran 
versus anybody else. It's about policymakers, and we still have a chance to save our religions and our countries and our goddamn planet, which is the only one we got. And if this level of war starts, this will not be inhabitable as a place for life at all. Here's my final question. What do you think it's going to take for the world to come together and say, you know what, if you stop shooting at me, I'll stop shooting at you? Uh, two things. Uh, one, brave, intelligent leaders on uh, almost uh, all sides, but at least on two or three major sides. And secondly, heaven forbid, something like an Armageddon uh, movie situation where there's some meteor coming our way and then everybody unites. Imran, do you want to tell a little bit more about your website and also about your podcast as well? Absolutely. On the note of all kinds of disasters that we face and how to avoid them, I am a, an eternal optimist. I look at some situations, I see problems. When I mention the risks we face, it is really an opportunity to avoid and solve those problems. And one of the things I focus on doing is calling attention to problems, but then suggesting solutions. And I do that on my website a lot at www.imran.com, which is I-M-R-A-N, imran.com, and my podcast and my blog, which is very popular, and where I uh, invite and welcome agreement and disagreement. Dissent is always welcome, because that's what we have the luxury of enjoying in this great nation, the United States of America. And I thank you for always bringing me on to agree or disagree. How did you feel about our conversation today? I am always delighted. Uh, uh, and I'm always, I feel that I am always enriched because I get to hear a different perspective. And I'm always able to find some new point that I become aware of, whether I agree or disagree. I become a new point or a new way of uh, approaching an issue. And that is always something that enriches me, and I thank you for that. You have my respect. Thank you so much. Imran, thank you so much for being our guest this week on You Are the Guest. Thank you so much. If you'd like to be a guest, it's real easy to find out how. Just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com and click Be the Guest for all the details. That concludes this week's edition of You Are the Guest from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.